The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 3, 14-22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Elena Joy. So, Uh, This is uh, the last of seven messages in our uh, current series, the one we've been in on the seven letters to the church, uh, the churches in Asia Minor, and um, this is the letter to the church at Laodicea. Uh, Two things are striking uh, about this particular letter. One is uh, that Jesus says nothing positive to them. And the other is that this city is, uh, bears a striking resemblance to the city of Nashville, Tennessee. It's a center of fashion. Its people are fashionable. Uh, they're well known for a luxurious black wool that they uh, made textiles, manufactured textiles out of that, 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 that uh, you know, produced beautiful black silky clothing. They were financially prosperous. I appreciated Missy's uh, overview of of what's happening financially and in the world of finance in uh, Nashville these days. They were also, Laodicea was a hub of of banking and finance and industry and entrepreneurism. Uh, They'd experienced a natural disaster, much like the city of Nashville and the 2010 floods that were here. In uh, AD 60, Laodicea uh, had been Uh, leveled by and flattened by an earthquake, and uh, the Roman government offered financial assistance to help them recover from what the earthquake had done to their city, and they refused all help. They said, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, We've got our own resources. We are an independent people, uh, and uh, we don't need the help from Rome that Rome is offering. And uh, the motto of the city of Laodicea was, we need nothing. We need nothing. We're independent. We're self-sustaining. We are secure in our own resources. 
It was, you might call it, the Silicon Valley of healthcare of its time. Uh, there was a famous medical school there. People came from all over uh, Asia Minor, especially to have their eyes worked on. It was the global center for ophthalmology. They produced uh, a famous eye salve that had healing properties for those who were visually impaired. And uh, so you had all of these things that bear similarity, sim similarity to our city. And uh, the irony about Laodicea was it was the place where you would go if you wanted to see. And yet Jesus says, you're blind. You're blind. I'd like to sort of uh, go through Jesus' assessment of this city uh, under three headings. Uh, one has to do with their blindness. It's the blindness that uh, was a byproduct of their response to their own prosperity. They were also nominal in their faith, and they were fanatical about shadows instead of substance. And so let's start with the blindness that was there to their own prosperity and in their own prosperity. They weren't blind to it, but they were blind in it. Verse 17, Jesus says, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so, so what he's doing is he's exposing their blind spots. He's exposing those things about themselves that are not healthy, that they cannot see, or as what the Psalms call their hidden faults. He's exposing them. You know, Kierkegaard says that there are two ways to be fooled. One is that you believe what isn't true, and the second way is that you refuse to believe what is true. And so Jesus is helping them to see what's true so that they can believe what's true and do something about it. This is why we go in for annual physicals, at least some of us do. At least that's what our health insurance companies recommend that we do is go in for an annual checkup with, with our primary care physician so they can do the blood work, so they can check the vital signs, etc. And what's the doctor doing in the annual checkup? The doctor is doing the same thing that a mechanic does when you take the car in to, to get the checkup. Or when you take your, your guitar in to, to, get, um, you know, to get worked on uh, at the music store. They're checking for problems. They're trying to find stuff that you can't see yourself to use their expert eyes and their expert um, you know, experience to find things that are going wrong. That's why you go in for your checkup. Oh, your, your LDL cholesterol is a little bit high. Oh, your blood sugar is doing some funky things. Oh, there's this, there's that. Your liver fun isn't functioning properly. Um, you need to, you know, go see a specialist to get checked for this, that, or the other. And why do so many of us actually avoid that annual checkup? Because we don't want to deal with that verdict if that verdict comes. We, we'd rather just not know that there is unhealth in us than have to deal with the unhealth that is in us. I was just talking to a 42-year-old friend the other day who said he hasn't been to the doctor since his teen years, since he was a teenager. Ever since his mom stopped making him go to the doctor, he's stopped going to the doctor. You know, they'd rather live under the illusion that they are doing quite well. Thank you very much. We need nothing. We're fashionable, to which Jesus would say, but you're naked. We're rich, to, to which Jesus would say, you're poor. We're the healthcare capital of the world, to which Jesus would say, you are sick. 
so sick that they made Jesus sick too. These words are haunting. In verse 15 where he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The literal translation from the Greek there is I will vomit you. I'm about to vomit you out. I'm about to throw up. You know, like the church at Sardis, which we looked at last week, they had a reputation for being alive, but the truth was that they were the furthest thing from being alive. And so this, this reference to hot water and cold water is significant too. It, 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 it was a significant subject in the city of Laodicea, the subject of water, because it was the one thing that they didn't have was a clean nearby water supply. They had to import water in from the north, which would have been from the hot springs of Hierapolis, which was several miles away through an aqueduct, or they would import cold water from the cold springs of Colossae to the south, again through aqueducts. But when water has traveled for several miles from from where it was once hot or from where it was once cold, by the time it gets to its destination, it's just lukewarm. It has assumed the temperature properties of its own environment. And along with that, the water would pick up minerals along the way in the aqueduct. And so the only reason why you would drink the water of Laodicea at the time was to induce vomiting. You know, you, you, it was a way to pump your stomach, so to speak. That was how they would do it back then. The water wasn't worth drinking. It wasn't warm enough to bathe in. It wasn't clean enough to cleanse you or to quench your thirst. It was essentially mud water. And what Jesus is saying is this, it is your water, your lukewarm, your tepid, dirty water, and not your fashion or your wealth or your healthcare innovations that are the true description of your condition as I see it. You are lukewarm. Whatever was once hot among you has cooled down. Whatever was once cool and refreshing has, has warmed up. You are lukewarm. Laodicea has actually become a synonym for lukewarmness or for apathy. And the message here to them, to us, and to anyone who has ears to hear is that an apathetic faith is nauseating to Jesus Christ. Being bored with Jesus Christ turns the stomach of Jesus Christ. My people, Jesus might say, I have sent them into the world to be my disciples in the culture, but they have become disciples of the culture instead. You know, they're, they're breathing the secondhand smoke of 
the world of Laodicea thinking that secondhand smoke is not going to harm them, but what they don't realize is that if you're a secondhand smoker, it, it, it might, you might as well be a firsthand smoker because it's going to affect you in the same way as you inhale it. And what Jesus is saying is, it is virtually impossible to tell any functional difference between a Laodicean Christian and a Laodicean non-Christian. You become like the world around you instead of salt and light in the world around you. You N.T. Wright said that, you know, about Laodicea, the smug, well-off attitude of the town as a whole had rubbed off on the Christians. It was the frog in the kettle effect where, 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 where the the water, you know, from, from, to get to, from a point of, 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 of being cold to, to boiling, it, it's very gradual. And if you throw the, the frog in the cold water, the frog doesn't even notice because the heat is going up so slowly and so gradually that the heat's going up. And before you know it, you've got a dead frog in boiling water. Jesus and the things of God had been gradually over time in a way that they weren't even able to, they weren't even noticing or paying attention to, had been pushed out of the center. Their passions had shifted away from Christ and, and, and from the things of God to things like career, improving their social rank, building and making a name for themselves, the accumulation of wealth, the accumulation of creature comforts, fashion, fitness, retail, vacation homes, all the rest, became their obsession. It's not that there's anything wrong with any of those things except that they became the obsession, the fixation. It was impossible to distinguish a Laodicean Christian from a Laodicean non-Christian. Christ had appeared to have made no functional difference in their lives. This is the blinding potential of having much. You want to know why the Scriptures are so dogged and, and insistent that wealthy people become absurdly generous, promiscuous with their money? Because if you don't, you will become subject to the blinding potential of having much. Jesus says it's more difficult for a rich person, for an affluent person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. He said, Thank, thanks be to God that what's impossible with a human being, human being, no human being has figured out the technology yet to shove a camel through the eye of a needle, but God, God can do it. But it's that hard for a self-sufficient person to see the kingdom of God. It's that difficult. Because wealth can blind you. You can only serve one master, Jesus says, it's an either-or proposition, God or your affluence. It, it, pick, choose. You cannot merge the two. There, there, there is no intersectionality and overlapping where you can have one toe in one world and, and another toe in another. You must choose. You know, the Apostle Paul says similar things as he writes to his young protege, Timothy, the tr who's a pastor, that the, the true gain, teach your people this, Timothy, the true gain is godliness with contentment. 
those who desire to be rich, not those who are rich, but those who desire to be rich, those who are fanatical about being rich, those for whom being rich is a primary goal in life, and who can imagine their lives without riches and wealth, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money, not money itself. Solomon had money. Job, godliest person in the world, had money. Luke, the physician, had money. Uh, Nicodemus had money. Joseph of Arimathea had money. Many God-fearing people had resources. It's not money itself. It is the love of money. That's a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving, it says in 1 Timothy 6, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. As the size of income goes up, the percentage of giving goes down. That is a known fact. Beware. Beware of the blinding potential of having more and more and more and more. And he's saying to them, in your quest to live large, you're actually shrinking. You're becoming small. In your quest to become significant in all the ways you're trying to become significant, you're becoming irrelevant. Beware, he says. You're blind in your own prosperity. Wake up. Put my eye salve on your eyes so you can see in the way that you really need to see. But then along with this, they are nominal in their faith. Nominalism means that you are a Christian in name only, but there's nothing stand out about your life that, you, that would make you guilty of the charge of being a Christian in anybody's eyes. That's, that's what he's saying. Your faith, he's saying to them, is unremarkable, it's sleepy, it's nice and polite, but it's going nowhere. Those I love, Jesus says, what curious words in, in, in the middle of, of such a strong, sharp rebuke. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, the story is told that she was once complaining to the Lord about all of her suffering. And presumably, the Lord said back to Teresa, this is how I treat my friends. To which she responded, then you shouldn't be surprised that you have so few of them. I mean, you ever think about it? There were over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Post-resurrection, over 500 eyewitnesses and over and only 120 followers. It's no wonder you have so few friends. Because Christianity is costly. Jesus speaks sharply, though, to them, not because he's against them, but, but because he's for them. One of the signs of health is that they will share his nausea about apathy. I mean, if you have a, a threatening bacteria or virus in your body and your body does not respond in violent ways to try to get it out through 
through vomiting and fevers and, and other things that the body does when a foreign element has been introduced, when unhealth has been introduced into the biological system. If your body does not respond with fierce negativity to the threat, it means that you're unhealthy. A sign of health is a visceral reaction to unhealth. And Jesus is just trying to get them healthy again. He wants them to be sickened by their own apathy. Because if you stay there, Laodiceans, in that place where where there's no romance, there's lip service to God, but no romance with Him. You want His hand, but you don't want His face. You're not going to be any good for your neighbor either. Because cold Christianity is, is supposed to be there. It's something that God plants in the world, cold Christianity, to refresh the world and to escort the world toward the living water, the same living water that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well about in John chapter 4. You know, you believe in me, I, I will give you streams of water. If you, if you drink of that living water, you will never thirst again. And the hot water, hot Christianity is meant to to, to be planted in the world by the Lord through us to to provide comfort and cleansing through the message and life of the gospel. Should be a bathing effect of gospel Christianity on the world around us. There's an urgency too from Jesus. Verse 19, and this, this is his address to their nominalism. Be zealous, he says, and repent. Now, this is a word that nominal Christians are put off by. Zealous. Be fanatical. Be zealous. Nobody wants to be a fanatic. Nobody wants to be known as zealous. Because the image that we have of zeal and fanaticism is the image of somebody who's holier than thou, pugnacious, known more for what they're against than what they're for, prideful, rude. Bishop J.C. Ryle had a different understanding of the term zealous. He wrote that a zealous man in religion is a man of one thing. He sees only one thing, cares for only one thing, lives for only one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. That one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or dies, whether he has health or sickness, whether he's rich or poor, whether he pleases man or gives offense, whether he is thought wise or thought foolish, whether he gets blame or gets praise, whether he gets honor or gets shame, he burns for one thing, to please God and to advance God's glory. When, when you're one thing, this is what Bishop Ryle was saying, when your one thing is a healthy thing, your zeal can only be a good thing. When your one thing is a healthy thing, your zeal can only be a good thing. So, so Russ Ramsey, uh, who will soon launch Christ Press's Cool Springs location two weeks from today, um, Russ and I were at a, we, we drove to an event, went to an event together this past week, and um, one of the most memorable things of the night was our interaction with the parking attendant. We're greeted by this parking attendant who is just 
beside himself thrilled to help us find the best parking space that he can help us find. He's like, you came to the right parking attendant. I have personally saved, as I didn't even know he knew who we were, I have personally saved this parking spot for you. And you just go around here, you go this way, you turn right, and, and, and you're going to find the perfect parking space right there. He was zealous to help us out. And he said, you have a good night. I hope you have a good night as we're driving off. And I, I just looked over at Russ. I said, don't you love it? When you, whenever you encounter somebody who is passionate about the job they've been given to do. Don't you love that kind of zeal? We all want a zealous surgeon, don't we? As opposed to an apathetic, inattentive one. We all want a zealous spouse, don't we? As opposed to one who has become bored with the life of our home. We all want a zealous mechanic who repairs everything that needs to be repaired before the big road trip. You know, being zealous can be one of the most positive, life-giving things that we can offer to the world. You know, Kenneth Scott LaTourette, who's a, a Yale uh, professor and historian, wrote uh, a book I believe an unreligious person. The book that he wrote was called A History of the Expansion of Christianity. And what he was trying to do was, was provide a, hist a historical basis and historical reasons and a historical answer to the question, why did Christianity win the Roman Empire? How could it have possibly been the case where Caesar and the Roman government had all the power and all the resources and by the third century AD had zero influence in Rome, whereas Christians who had no power and not a whole lot of resources or influence, they were an oppressed minority. Every letter of the New Testament was written by an oppressed person who was an, regarded as an enemy of Rome. You know that, right? How, from that position, did they become the most influential people group in all of Rome by the third century AD? La Tourette says that it was a vast release of energy. That's his phrase. A vast release of energy, a zeal, a fanaticism about certain things. One, a zeal about absolute truth, because there'd been an, a loss of absolute truth in Rome. People were starved for an anchor. People were starved for a moral compass. They were starved for something bigger than themselves around which to arrange their lives and their communities and their mission. Christianity offered that. Rome did not. They were zealous about inclusiveness. In Rome, if you wanted to be in the proper social circles, you had to be into philosophy. And to be into philosophy, you had to have a higher education. In order to have a higher education, you had to have wealth. And so many people were left out 
of those sorts of opportunities to be on the inner rings and inner circles of Rome. And then along comes Christianity and says, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He's the God of the rich. He's the God of the poor. In Rome, the sick, the lepers, the paralytics, those who were suffering from the plague were tossed out onto the streets by their relatives to die, and the Christians took them in. Inclusiveness. Rome was a male-centered, male-dominated, paternalistic, hashtag me too kind of culture, except if you protested, you would get destroyed. Women were to be seen, not heard. Women were objects, not subjects. They were treated as things, not as persons. Girls were routinely, baby girls were routinely thrown in dumpsters by their fathers who wanted boys. It was perfectly legal. And the Christians would go into the dumpsters and take the girls out and and adopt them into their own families. You want to know why adoption is such a, a robust theme in the New Testament letters? It's because this is what was going on. And women, if they became widowed, they either had to become prostitutes to survive financially, or they died of starvation and homelessness and things of the sort. And in comes the Christian community, the inclusive community, the welcoming community, who who not only took care of widows but exalted them, and who not only gave women and conferred to to women the same dignity as was conferred to men, but elevated their status. There's a letter letter from a a governor named Pliny to Trajan, the emperor at the time. This was in the AD 90s. He said, I'm trying to find out more about the Christians and I just tortured two women, he's just saying it matter-of-factly, I just tortured two women who were deaconesses in their church to find out more about their beliefs. I mean, you have to torture, can't you just ask somebody what they believe? Why do you have to torture them to find out? He tortures a couple of women, finds out they're deaconesses. What does that say? These people are odd. They put women in positions of leadership. There's this radical inclusion, this otherworldly countercultural inclusion. Another thing that Latourette said was there was a zeal that was manifest in a willingness to suffer for their convictions and their beliefs because they were convinced they were true because of their belief in this thing called the resurrection. They were zeal for kindness. Kindness as a contrast to the barbarism of Rome. Generosity as a contrast to the greed and consumerism of Rome. They became known as as a group of people who loved Rome's poor better than Rome loved Rome's poor. They were zealous to love in the same way that they had been loved. They were zealous to forgive in the same way that they had been forgiven by their Savior. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament letters that there's no bitterness toward the government? There's no bitterness toward Rome. There's no standing up for our rights. There's no guerrilla warfare movements. There's no 
let's stick it to them. There's no cynicism. There's just a call and urging to live faithfully. You know, just as Jeremiah had encouraged the exiles under the fierce rule of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 29, this is where you are. This is your situation. Build houses, raise families, love your neighbor well, seek the peace and the flourishing of Babylon where you've been brought into captivity. Live a life that, 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 that is lived in such a way that, that, that my people become known for loving Babylon better than Babylon loves Babylon and for loving Rome better than Rome loves Rome. That's how they won Rome. There were no partisan politics for Christians. None. They didn't see power as the means for the world to become better and more beautiful and bright, unless we're talking about the resurrected power of love. Talk about zeal. The non-Christian philosopher David Hume traveled on foot 20 miles to hear George Whitfield preach the gospel. And this man was a known, you know, famously known secularist, and somebody recognized him and, and said, hey, you're David Hume, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am. Why are you here? To hear George Whitfield preach. But you don't believe anything that George Whitfield preaches. You're right, but he does. If you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's the Laodicean question. From the one who loves us so much that he reproves us and disciplines us. Are we shaping the culture or are we being slowly shaped by it? Stop being fanatical about shadows. Jesus urges them to look through their fashion to the white garments of His righteousness that, that He has provided, to look through the healing qualities of their eye salve to the One who will open the eyes of their hearts so they can see in the truest sense of the word, to see through their wealth to, to the gold that has been refined by fire by the One who says, I am your treasure, I am your share, I am your inheritance, I am your wealth, I am your affluence. All the blessings of their prosperity could only be blessings to the degree that their prosperity became a pointer to the one who is the ultimate point. I, the Lord, stand at the door and knock. Jesus, this is the beautiful thing, He loves rich people too. He loves rich people and He loves poor people because both are poor people in His eyes, and His heart burns with compassion toward all poor people, to the, to the poor poor and to the poor rich. We're all poor, poor, pitiful people. And He says, come buy from Me gold refined by fire. How can you do that without money? It's because the currency, there's a currency that Jesus will accept. It's the only currency that He'll receive. It's the currency of your need. Let me close in prayer with these words from Isaiah, and then we'll go to the table. Let's close together. 
Come, the Lord says through Isaiah, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat. Be zealous about, be fanatical about what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Father, I remember what Tim Keller said once. How can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly for you without giving yourself utterly to him? To do anything else is not only an offense in the moral sense, It's a crucifixion of the intelligence. It's as stupid as it is wicked. Lord, help us not to be stupid. Help us not to be wicked by becoming fanatical about the wrong things, by pushing you out of the centers and shifting our passions towards smaller things that will give us smaller lives and smaller impact. Father, let the the warnings to Laodicea be a cautionary tale to us. In the same way, let the invitation to Laodicea, which is the most generous invitation from you in all seven of these letters, be our clarion call even now to come to this table to eat with you and you with us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.